We are actually going to try to tackle two chapters tonight. Don't laugh. It's a serious statement. I know. It's questionable, but it's still serious. Job's tough questions. Is it wrong for you and I to ask some tough questions as Christians? Have you ever been in a season of life where you're really trying to figure out what God is doing, and maybe you've had some of those evenings, maybe after a Bible study, maybe, maybe with some friends, maybe you, you have a good friend who has become a Christian, and maybe they're at a similar place in their journey as you are. Maybe you can reflect back to some nights when you maybe were at a retreat or you were by a fireside, and you began to talk about God, and it got real. And it's kind of cool when we get real about life, and when we get real about our faith and our struggles. Uh, I remember uh, back at a retreat a couple years ago where a young man approached me and he said, you know, I, I'm feeling called to the ministry, but I've got this stuff. And it was just real and raw. And we talked for a couple hours and it was neat just to be able to say, hey, none of us have all the answers and we're all on a journey. And the book of Job was written, I think, for people like us to be able to realize that problems in life, difficulty, tough questions come to all of us no matter how righteous you've been, no matter how hard you're trying to walk with the Lord. When we're introduced to Job in the book of Job, it is God who brags on Job. Have you considered my servant? Hear that, my servant Job. He's a blameless and upright man. He, he's turns away from evil. He does good. He fears the Lord. He shuns evil. There's nobody like him. God was the one that initiated that, and then Satan responded, well, does he serve you for no reason? It's because you put a hedge about him. It's because you blessed him. And off and running, we go into the book of Job. By the end of chapter 2, Job's life is an utter disaster. He has lost virtually everything. He's on the ash heap outside the city with boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And he's scraping the boils, the pus, with a piece of broken clay. And his friends finally arrive. And they, when they look at him, they can do nothing but cry. He's a, a shell of a man that he used to be. And they're silent for seven days, right? Nobody even talks. And then Job breaks the silence in Job 3 with his sad soliloquy, as we, as we put it. And Job begins to curse the day of his conception, the night of his birth. He wishes it was wiped off the calendar, and he just lays it all out there. I wish I never were born. And his three friends are like, don't say things like that. Stop it. Eliphaz is the first to give a speech, and that's recorded in chapters 4 and 5. And the speech sounds good, and there's some truth in it. Remember, if you were with us, there's some, some neat stuff, some real uh, spiritual truth in there, but Eliphaz missed the mark. Because essentially what Eliphaz was saying is that, Job, there's, there must be something that you've done wrong that you need to repent of for all of this to go away. Obviously, there's some sort of sin in your life that has caused this. And in Job's grief, in chapter 6 and 7, he's going to respond to Eliphaz's speech with a series of tough, tough questions. In fact, this is the first of eight speeches from Job in the book. 
the first responding to Eliphaz, who was strongly implying that Job needed to repent and return to God. But Job hadn't really gone anywhere. Job was a true worshiper of God, and he will remain so through the whole book, despite the fact that he asks tough questions and has some doubts and struggles with who he is before God. And I just want to tell you, if you are in a season like that right now where you're asking some tough questions like, do I believe this because I believe this or because my parents took me to church? I believe that every Christian has to wrestle with tough questions. Like, why do I believe certain theological truths? Is it because my favorite pastor holds that position? Or is it because I've really wrestled with the three or four or five major positions on that particular doctrine? Now, we're all at different places, and we have exposure to different you know, amounts of information at different times. But struggling with your faith and digging out truth and wrestling with questions before God is not a bad thing. And it doesn't mean that you've abandoned your faith because you're asking hard questions. I believe the Bible can stand up to our hard questions, don't you? The book of Job would not be in your Bible if it was written by man to try to avoid tough questions. Because this book, at the very root of it, is tough. Why did God initiate this with Satan to begin with? Why didn't he just leave Job alone? Because if he left Job alone, then you couldn't read Job after you lost your Job job. <laughs> or if your family's going through something, look, I know a lot of you have kind of acknowledged the book of Job is in the Bible, and I will read it when the crisis comes. <laughs> Some of you have stayed away from the book of Job, like, ooh, it might be bad. <laughs> But the book of Job is there to tell you that life doesn't always make sense. Eliphaz has deduced or more appropriately assumed in his religiously systematized approach that sin is the problem and repentance is the cure. But in Job's situation, that is not the case. Job is not going through what he's going through because he sinned. And in life, sometimes we're going through what we're going through because we sinned, and sometimes it's not because we sinned. It could be that we're under some spiritual attack. Or it could be that this is just the result of living in a fallen world. And Job is going to ask some deep questions. This is something we need to come to terms with. Personal sin is not always at the root of suffering and asking tough questions and even having some doubts does not mean you've abandoned your faith. In fact, as Shane mentioned earlier, it is times like these, probably like no other, that can push us deeper and cause us ultimately to lean in stronger. See, Job's witness is not just before his uh, remaining servants who are still alive or his friends who have shown up. Job's witness is actually a witness even to the angels, and one specific angel who does not believe that anybody will just worship God for who he is. See, that's what Satan was saying. 
He'll worship you because you bless him, because you've prospered him, but the moment you take it away, he'll curse you to your face. That's what Satan thinks. Perhaps that's what all the fallen angels think. If you were here on Sunday, I mentioned to you that modesty has to happen as we made the we dug out the spirit of the text in 1 Corinthians 11 when we talked about uh, that difficult passage. It says the woman is to be covered, and we essentially said that's about modesty. Remember this, because of the angels. And I said to you guys who were here on Sunday, you know, when you come into a corporate worship service on a Sunday, do you consider that our corporate worship may be bigger than you might think or imagine? That there may be realms in the spirit world that are somehow witnessing what is going on with us. And obviously Satan had some knowledge of Job's life. You can write down if you want more on this. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10 and 1 Corinthians eleven ten. Job is a true worshiper searching for answers. We're all going to end up there at some point. The only way you can find true answers, are you ready? Buckle your seatbelt, is to ask tough questions. That's the only way you're going to find true answers. Some of you have been wrestling with free will and the sovereignty of God. And you're like, whoa, okay, we have free will, but God is sovereign. Election, free will, election, free will. How do you make sense of that? Somebody said it's like two pillars that go up into the sky, election and free will, and somewhere God puts the roof on it. But we all got to wrestle with it, right? We all have to ask some questions about what's going on with that. We all have to ask questions about where wisdom can be found. In Job 28, he says of wisdom, God understands its way. He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens when he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure. God understands the way of wisdom. If you want wisdom, if you want true wisdom, you've got to know God. And you've got to know his word. Job is going to eventually come out of this trial as pure gold. But he's going to go through deep testing. His speeches says one writer, are rich, but they're often pathetic and poignant. I could add they are ragged at times, but they are deep and rich. They are filled with doubt, and yet deeply, Job is deeply right with God, as we will see at the end of the book. Job is right with God. Oh, yes, he doesn't know everything, and he's going to say at the end of the book, I heard about you with my ears. But now I see you with my eyes. You see, the journey did deepen Job. And no, I can't explain to you why the loss and all that happened. But Job does find his answers in the face of God, and so will you. And the only way that you can find your answers in the face of God is to seek his face. And have you noticed that the times that you will seek God's face the most is usually when you're in the most trouble, right? It's when you're in the valley. It's when you can't make sense of everything and you don't got it and you think you have this one and you figure out you don't have it and then you're forced to cry out to God. And so Job answered. He responded 
Job 6.1 to Eliphaz's speech. And here's what he says. Exclamation. He cries out, oh, verse 2, Job 6. Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my calamity. For then it would be heavier, my calamity here, my grief. It would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Therefore, my words have been rash. Oh, that my vexation could be weighed and my misfortune put on a scale. Have you ever uh, not weighed yourself for a while? Maybe it's Thanksgiving or Christmas time and Christmas cookies will come and Christmas cookie, Christmas cookie. And then you said, tomorrow. These are my famous words. Tomorrow, I'll start my diet tomorrow. And then you go into the office on a Monday morning and they say, hey, it's, uh, it's, it's brother so-and-so's birthday. They get the chocolate cake. And you're like, we're starting the diet tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow, there's always tomorrow. It's only two pounds away. And then finally you do it. Dun, da, da, da. You step on the scale. <laughs> Things, bells and whistles are going off. <laughs> now you feel bad for the hockey goalie when they score and that red light goes off. It's a lonely job, man. And the scale, have you ever looked at the scale and said, there's something wrong with this thing. <laughs> it's, it's broken. I'm going to test it against the one at the doctor's office. And then the doctor's office, you're a pound heavier than the one at, at home. <laughs> oh, no. The truth shall set you free. Anyway. Now, all of that to say that Job <laughs> was saying, I wish my anxiety, my vexation, my grief could be weighed. Get this. He said, if, it, if there was a machine to weigh human grief, my grief would outweigh the sands of the seas. Now, when we look at people, let's face it, Sometimes we interact with some people and we think that some people overdo it with what they're going through. So if you know somebody that maybe overdoes it a little bit, sometimes, you know, you're like, okay, you know, take it easy now. Is it really that bad? And if there's somebody that is constantly whining about stuff and you've come to know them pretty well, then okay, chill out, calm down. But some humans overplay their pain, let's face it, and then others, what do they do? They downplay it, right? There's a lot of people that, you know, you, you see them, if you haven't seen them in two months, you go, where have you been? Oh, I, I just had surgery. <laughs> like, what? You know, I didn't tell anybody. My wife doesn't even know. <laughs> like, what's going on with you? They downplay it. Now, imagine if you're one of Job's friends and you arrived and you look at his boils and, and you hear the calamity and you look at the man but as another human being let's face it if I've never been through that before let's say I've never experienced something like Job's either losses or physical ailments that he's going through at this moment do I really know what he's going through it's easy for me to interact with somebody have sympathy for them and go home but I'm not in their pain. What if there was a machine invented 
where you could actually weigh the depth of somebody's pain. And you could see it. See, as a human being, I can't see that. I can, I can sympathize with it. If I've gone through it personally, then I can feel that a little bit more. But if it's not my pain, then I can easily downplay it. I can quote a couple scriptures. I'll be praying for you, brother, sister, and go on my merry way. But that person is still in their pain. Have you ever visited somebody in the hospital, and you pray for them, and you have a heart of compassion for them, and you walk out with this deep sense like, I'm walking out of here to go to do whatever I'm going to do, but that person is still dealing with that situation. And, you know, Job is implying here that you guys don't understand my pain. You see, we fall woefully short in understanding people's pain. And the incredible thing about our God is that he invites us to give him our burdens. He says, cast all your care to me because I what? I care for you. We're told in Galatians 6 that we're to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And so in verse 4, he says, For the arrows of the Almighty, that's Shaddai, are within me. They're poison. Notice that Job is saying that God is the source of his pain. The arrows of the Almighty are within me, or they've hit me, if you will. They're poison. So something like a poison tip on an arrow here. My spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Job has pinpointed the source of his pain as God. Is he right? Well, Satan did carry out the deed, right? Satan did ask to get at Job, and then God said, you can, you can get at him, but you can't take his life. But ultimately, who allowed Satan to have his way? God did. So, I don't know how, I won't stay here long, but I'll just tell you that Job has certainly sensed this correctly, that God has allowed all of this stuff to come into his life. In Psalm 7, verses 10 through 13, it says, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who is in indignation every day. If man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Now, for those of you who have studied the armor of God, you know that we have a shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the fiery arrows of the evil one. But what if the arrows are coming from God? That's what Job is sensing. Let's turn over to uh, Psalm 38. So just a little bit to your right, Psalm 38. It's hard to imagine uh, these thoughts, but this is what Job is going through. This is how he's thinking. Job 38. This is a psalm of David. It's called a memorial psalm, Psalm 38. And it says, beginning in verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, 38.1. Chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, Psalm 38.2. Thine arrows have sunk deep into me. Thy hand 
has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as heavy burden, as a heavy burden they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. David says, your arrows have sunk deep into me. Turn back to the book of Job. Are there times when God, metaphorically speaking, not literally, could fire arrows into our life? Apparently so. And why would that be? Well, it could be for his disciplinary reasons. But does Job need discipline right now? No. He's a blameless and upright man. He's even been offering sacrifices for his children. Job might say, I understand the arrows of the evil one, Ephesians 6, I think, verse 16, but why is God firing at me? The same horror that occupants of a besieged city uh, feel floods Job's soul, says one writer. They are not coming from the underworld, as was implied by Eliphaz and Job 5.7, but they're coming down from heaven. Is this friendly fire? Have I become God's enemy? That's what Job is asking. What happened here that God is firing at me? The poison has gotten into my bloodstream, into my heart, and into my spirit. It hurts me deeply on more than one level. I would like to sing... I'm blessed beyond all measure. How many of you have heard that song? I'm counting every blessing, right? I'm blessed beyond all measure. But Job right now might say, I'm counting every arrow. And they have sunk into my spirit and my soul. Job gives an illustration to help us understand. Verse 5, Job 6, he says, Does the wild donkey bray over his grass or does the ox low over his fodder? Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? For those of you who are fans of salt, you say, absolutely not. Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? How many of you have been on those diets where you say, ah, today I'm going to have egg whites. Egg whites with a side of uh, cantaloupe. <laughs> That's what I'm going with today, baby. And then you need salt, right? Because egg whites are apparently healthy for you, but they are pretty much tasteless, right? And the more you hear about the eggs, you know, it go, they go back and forth. And they, then they say the yolk's actually good for you, and that's where you get the protein, and back and forth and up and down it goes. But here's the idea. One uh, writer says it's very difficult to understand the, what, what the writer is getting at. It could be the juice of the mallow, if you have an ESV, or Job is talking about the milk of a weed. You know, some weeds apparently have a milky substance in them. Can you imagine if you pulled a weed from your backyard and you, you tore it up a little bit, had some of those barbs on it, and you said, oh, hey, there's milk in there. <laughs> That would be gross. Job would say, that's disgusting. I'm not going to eat that. An animal that is not fed or given an edible diet brays and lows or bellows. Why? 
Because they're hungry. Because what they're getting is not fulfilling. Pope translates this as slimy cream cheese. Or for some of you, you could relate to this. Any of you tried to go with cottage cheese before? How many of you actually like cottage cheese? What in the world is going on with you people? I think I got uh, soured on cottage cheese because one time I was in one of those, uh, my wife was my hands. I was one of those puppet things, you know. And my wife started spooning mystery things into my mouth. It was at a vacation Bible school. And one of them was cottage cheese. And it was a spoon, and I couldn't control it because she was my hands. It's terrible. Yuck. My soul refuses to touch them. They are like loathsome food to me. What is Job saying? He's probably referring to his life circumstances, and he's saying, what's been dished up to me? Man, I can't even stand to look at it. He may be addressing the words of his friends, so far just Eliphaz, as hurtful morses, morsels difficult to swallow or unpalatable or even poisonous. <clears throat> and maybe that's why he's lowing or belly aching, as it were. In Psalm 69 about the Messiah, ultimately it says, Reproach has broken my heart. I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This whole situation was a bitter pill to swallow, not a healing balm. Job was suffering, and Job has a request. Verse 8. He says, Oh, that my request might come to pass, that God would grant my longing. Would that God were willing to crush this speaks of a cruel, violent, trampling death that God would crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Job says, I wish God would just finish the job and kill me. Remember, that was in Job 3 when he wished that his birth date, the night of his conception and birth, were wiped off the calendar forever. Now he's saying, I wish God would just finish the job. And I want you to hear a nuance of this that's important. Job is not talking about suicide. He's saying, if I die, it will be God that takes my life. I will not take my own life. And I know sometimes when we're in desperate situations, man, we're, we're hearing some staggering uh, statistics about suicide right now. Among young people, among our veterans. And Job is saying, look, I wish, God, that you would just take me, but he's not advocating suicide. He's saying, God, take my life. It is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I've denied the, not denied the words of the Holy One. Here's what Job is saying. He's saying, God, please take me out before I curse you. I have not, look at the verse, I have not denied the words of the Holy One, you might add, yet, and I don't want to. I don't want to dishonor you. I don't want to deny you. I don't want to curse you like the Satan said I would, even though Job doesn't know that right now. So please take me out before I fall on my face. That's a pretty noble reason, right? Is Job a worshiper of God, Bible students? Yes, he is. Does he believe that there's a God still? Yes, he does. 
Now, he doesn't understand what God is doing, but he says, I don't want to dishonor you. I don't want to curse you, so please crush me so I don't curse you, so I won't deny you. We all can think of Peter. Peter promised to die for Jesus. Though all forsake you, I will not. Jesus said, Peter, I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. Well, everybody, all the disciples said the same thing. We're not going to deny you. And then in the garden, Peter took the sword, and you got to you got to marvel at Peter's bravery because when Peter took the sword, he was essentially saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to do what I said. I said I would die for him. He took the sword out, and he cut off the, the servant of the high priest's ear off, right, Malchus? And Jesus said, put away the sword. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And so Peter put away the sword, and then a little later, he denies the Lord. He does exactly what he said he would never do. Maybe he was confused. Why did Jesus stop me? I was trying to defend my Lord, and he stopped me. Why? And Peter denies the Lord the, three times the cock crows, and Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. And I want you just to think about it. If you're Peter on this night, and you're somewhere in a corner weeping bitterly, you might say to yourself, you know what? It would be good if my life just ended right now because how can anybody ever recover from denying the Messiah three times after what I said? And then the next day, Jesus dies on the cross and Peter's got to be even in a worse condition because now his Savior, his friend, his Lord has died a terrible death on the cross. He denied him. And Peter may be thinking, it's over. My life is in such a shambles. I will never recover from this. Did Peter recover? Yes, he did. See, the Lord Jesus resurrected from the dead. Peter was restored to his ministry. And Peter took the keys of the gospel and preached in the middle of Jerusalem and 3,000 Jews came to the Lord. And then he went to Samaria and brought the keys there to the Samaritans and then into the house of Cornelius and preached the gospel to Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile. And his life was completely restored. But that night, Peter felt like he had to feel this small. He had to think, my life, it would be better if I was just gone. If we could just end it now, so that, you know, how do you recover from something like that? But brothers and sisters, please hear what I'm about to say. Even if you're at a very low place and you've disappointed yourself, God can still work it together for good. He can still use you in a powerful way, even if you failed. Job says, what is my strength that I should wait? What is my end? that I should endure. Where is this all going? Have you ever said this before? How could this possibly work together for good? I know Romans 8.28. Don't quote it to me now. <laughs> ever been there before? You got to quote Romans 8.28 at the right time. Yeah. Don't quote it right now. Someone might even stop you in the middle of Don't you do it! God works all things together. For <laughs> but he does. See, the verse is true, and the enemy wants to rob us of it. Why would God wait finishing me off? 
Is my strength the strength of stones? Am I a rock? Or is my flesh like bronze? Is it that my help is not within me? And that the deliverance is driven from me? I am not made of stone. I am not made of metal. I'm fragile. Take a look at me, Job might say. I'm a disaster. Do I have the inner resources to hold on? Answer, nope. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when Paul says, Lord, remove this thorn in my flesh. This is the third time I'm praying about it. Jesus responds, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected. Where? In weakness. And then Paul says, okay, then I'm going to rejoice in my weaknesses. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now Job, as he's been really addressing his friends, says, for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. That's, again, Shaddai. This is a response to Eliphaz. Write down Job 5.17. He who withholds kindness from a friend, ESV, forsakes the fear of the Almighty. One writer says, friendship in the Old Testament carries with it strong obligation, even covenant, to show loyalty, especially when a friend is suffering. Job implicitly accuses his three friends of failing to show him loyal sympathy and love. The, Greek, or the Hebrew word is hesed. They thought they knew why he had experienced this and why he was still suffering, but they failed to be kind They thought if they could come up with a religiously systematized answer, a philosophical or religious answer, that would suffice. And Job's saying, no, that's not going to do it. What I really needed was your kindness. And you've made it harder. My brothers have acted deceitfully, illustration like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanish, which are turbid because of ice, and into which the snow melts. When they become waterless, they are silent. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their course wind along. They go up into nothing and perish. The caravans of Timah look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them. They were disappointed, for they had trusted. They came there and were confounded. A desert wadi in the hills in certain climates can be filled with icy water from the melting snows above. But in the summer, the wadi becomes bone dry. Imagine a caravan of traders, perhaps from Timah, which is the center of trade routes in northwestern Arabia. As they journey, they found that they are running out of water. Somebody remembers that several miles off in a trade route, up in the foothills, there's a flowing stream. Warily, they make their detour, using their last supplies of water on the way. But when they get to the stream, they find it is parched and arid. Disappointment floods their hearts. They were mistaken in their hopes. When you are in desperate need of water and come to a place where there should be water, but there is none, it is devastating. Thus, Job says, that is what you guys are like to me. You should have been overflowing with kindness towards me in my trials, but you're like a dried up brook. You are not dependable. 
I was hoping desperately for refreshment in your company, for living water, as Jesus mentioned to the woman at the well. But instead, what I got was dryness and brittleness and emptiness. If we who are human cannot weigh somebody's pain on some sort of scale, and we offer advice when we don't really know what's at the heart of an issue, and we think that we can just, you know, come up with something and say, hey, this is the answer, and we don't know, we can get ourselves in trouble. We can end up actually making somebody worse off than better off. You might say, well, then, Pastor Michael, what should you do when you don't really know? Maybe something like this. Hey, I don't know what God's doing right now. Let's pray. Maybe it just needs to be that simple. Because whenever you try to think of something good, <laughs> you usually get yourself in trouble. Ever been there before? Okay, let me rehearse what I'm going to say. You're, you're driving over there, right? This is a, okay, and if I say this right at this exact time, along with a little bit of this over here, wait a minute, is that the Holy Spirit or is that you? And sometimes you come upon a situation and you're like, you know what? I, I don't know. And I think sometimes maturity leads us to say, I don't know. Like, it used to be back in the day when you'd see a, a kid who was out of control, you'd say to that parent, you know, why don't you control your kid? <laughs> and then you have children! <laughs> my sister used to give me a bad time because I said that to her one time. And then my boys, my boys are wonderful boys, but, you know, they were still kids, and they had their moments, and my sister would say, hey, Michael, why don't you control your kid? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Indeed, you have now become such. You see a terror and are afraid. 22. Have I said, give me something? Or offer a bribe for me from your wealth? Or deliver me from the hand of the adversary? Have I asked you for anything, Job says to his friends? Or redeem me from the hand of the tyrants? A covenant friend back in the ancient times like Abraham did for Lot or David and Jonathan, uh, sometimes because of a covenant obligation would go and rescue them, redeem them, help them pay off a debt. Job says, I've asked for none of that from you guys. But you've come here with your presuppositions, and we're only going to do chapter 6 because I can already see we're out of time. <laughs> you guys are right. The reason that you've got yourself in trouble, please hear what I'm about to say is that you've come with your presuppositions and your pride. You thought you knew what was going on before you actually talked to me. Anybody ever made that mistake before? We, we come on our white horse riding into a situation. I, I did this, I have to confess, with the boys when they were younger. You know, my wife, I'd come home, my wife was in a bit of a, Spin. <laughs> I come in on the white horse. Who did it? Who should I kill first? Here I come to save the day. That's from Mighty Mouse. And and then I they try to explain it. It's not quiet. <laughs> Line up. Twenty five push ups right now. One arm. <laughs> you know. But that. And I honestly, 
would say there's times when I had some regrets of not letting them share. See, when we come with our presuppositions and pride and we don't listen, imagine that they, imagine the three friends traveling from their long distances. Okay, Job's lost everything, house folded in the, on the kids, animals stolen, Job's sick from head to toe. He's got this disease. Nobody even knows what it is. His wife cursed him and said, go ahead and curse God and die. Man, this, this dude, I can't imagine what he's done wrong, but I can think of about 10 things that he probably did. Maybe 15, maybe 20, right? So you ride into town. Okay, Job. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Nice soliloquy. Okay, that's enough of that. Now, listen up. We'll straighten you out on a few things. And Job's essentially saying, you didn't even listen to me. You didn't even hear my heart. I didn't ask you for anything, but listen, teach me and I'll be silent, 24. Show me how I, how I have erred. See the word erred there? It's the word for unintentional sins in Leviticus. If I've committed some unintentional sin, Job is not denying that he's a sinner and he could have done something. Show me how I have erred. How painful are honest words, 25. But what does your argument prove? If you have the ESV, it says, how forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? If you could truly show me where I've gone wrong, then I would listen and I would be humble about it. I could benefit from it. But you haven't done that. Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? Verse 26 says, one writer says, the sense is, though the verse is not easy to understand, do you want to put right what I say and treat my despairing words as empty wind? You're not really listening. You're not taking me seriously when you try to impose your, your simple system of religion on my pain. Job's saying, please hear me. You would even cast lots for the orphans and barter over your friend. I feel like you guys are playing a religious game to see which one of you is right about my situation. Let's roll the dice. Okay, if it's a six, he did this wrong. If it's a seven, he did this wrong. Come on, seven. Job's like, what are you guys doing? You know, we have a whole industry that's built on gossip. The next morsel to take in. A couple years back, I was, uh, where was I? I was getting my hair cut. And they had a show on where one after another, it was stories, gossip stories about the latest buzz in Hollywood. And, oh, and then this person over here broke up with so-and-so and cheating with so-and-so. And after every story was complete, the audience would go, Coming up, the next juicy morsel of gossip. Some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? And, and, and this person over here, and look at them. They got this picture of them in the swimsuit. They gained 40 pounds. And, and whoop, 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 whoop. So I mentioned this in a sermon. All right. Lady comes up to me. I hope she's not here tonight. I don't think she is. 
She says, Pastor Michael, I haven't been in church for a while, and I came, and you did that whole thing, and you know what I was watching yesterday? Woo, woo, woo. She goes, I, I, I'm kind of into that thing, and I watch it, and boy, I felt convicted. And I was like, woo, woo, praise the Lord. Woo. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. When Jesus was on the cross, the soldiers began to cast lots for his garments. They say in the ancient world, if you owed, if you had a debt that you couldn't pay, uh, sometimes what would happen is that people would uh, look at your belongings, including your children, and cast lots to see what they would take from you to repay the debt. When Jesus was dying on the cross, Psalm 22 prophetically says that they divide my garments among them, 2218, and for my clothing they cast lots. Can you imagine if you were dying on the cross and you watched people gambling for your clothing? Hey, which one of us is going to get that piece? Job says, that's what I feel like. I feel like you guys haven't even heard me. And you're casting lots to see which one of you is right. Look at 28. Now, please look at me and see if I lie to your face. Have they been looking away? When somebody says, please look at me, have you ever been there before? Have you ever had, been in a situation where someone's talking to you, but they're going like this? And so, in conclusion, I think the problem with you is that, and you're over here. And, and, and if you would just get it together, then things could move. And you're like, hey, I'm over here. One thing I tried to teach my kids when they were young, my boys, was give a solid handshake and look people in the eye. And then wink at them. No, don't. I had to do it. <laughs> don't give them the wet fish thing, please. Come on. Grab the hand. Look them in the eye. Chest bump. <laughs> no, I'm just. He says, look at me. They might say, you're pretty hard to look at, Job. You got boils from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, and they're oozing. And We're going to see that it's possible that Job even had worms or maggots on his body. That would cause you to look away. Job says, I want you to look at me. See if I'm lying. It says of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, 3, He's despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Jesus is dying on the cross, and people said, don't look at him. He's under the curse of God. But if you're the Messiah, come down from the cross, and we'll believe in you. In the book of Job, is about, ultimately, about finding our answers in the face of Jesus. Do you know that in the next chapter, the one to whom Job will complain 
is the one who's going to come into this world and die being totally innocent and die for the sins of others. And so Job says, desist now. Cease and desist. Let there be no injustice. Even desist. My righteousness is yet in it. Is there injustice on my tongue? I cannot, excuse me, cannot my palate discern calamities. Job says, just stop. Don't talk anymore. And look, Eliphaz's speech wasn't that bad. But Job says, look, you've missed the mark. I am a worshiper of God. If there's injustice on my tongue, I don't know of it. Can I discern what I would have done in my own life? If I had committed some, like, let's say that Job cheated on his wife. Wouldn't he have said to his friends in all likelihood, okay, this is what I did wrong. Don't you think I can discern my calamity? Cease and desist. Stop with your arguments. Because right now, I don't feel like you love me. I feel like I'm a pawn in your religious discussions. Oh, how easy it is for us to talk about other people when we're not going through it. Over to John 7, and we're done, says the preacher. John 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus had many confrontations with the religious leadership of his day, and the people sometimes got involved into it as well, the people around. This is John 7, 19. John 7, 19. Jesus says, Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The multitude, John 7, 20, answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. 23. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance. What's the Bible say? From the mouth of Jesus. Judge. So that means judging is biblical. But judge with what? A right or righteous judgment. That is what Job is saying to his friends. But now, be so kind to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent. Don't be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? From the NIV. Can my mouth not discern malice? Father, we are humbled as we go through the book of Job because there's so much... I think especially in Job's speeches that we can learn about difficulty and pain and how we respond to others and even ourselves as we go through uh, this life. This life is filled with so many beautiful, wonderful moments to celebrate. And yet this is a broken world and there are times and seasons of great pain. Some of it's inexplicable. And sometimes when we try to bring easy, systematized answers to problems, we miss the mark. Not always, but sometimes. The book of Job is a great lesson about not rushing to judgment. 
about making sure that we understand that God may be doing something in someone's life that we cannot see. And maybe even tonight, for some who are here or may listen to this later, that's exactly what's going on. God is allowing something for his divine purposes. And maybe it's to grow us. Maybe it's a testimony to angels. Maybe it's a witness to a family member or friend who won't be here very long. Maybe it's a chance to impact someone with the way we conduct ourselves in the midst of suffering. Lord, we realize that it's not always, our greatest witness is not always when life is perfect and blessed, in quotes. Sometimes our strongest witness is when life isn't going well, we may even be suffering, and yet we say, I'm going to follow him. For 2,000 years, Lord, we know the church is, uh, has enjoyed the power of your resurrection. I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. And Lord, we don't like to talk about this much because it's not a pleasant topic, but there is fellowship in suffering. As Paul discovered, and I think every Christian who walks with the Lord discovers that there's a certain beauty, a fragrance that comes out of a Christian's life in suffering and holding on to the gospel, which is not just for this life, but has eternal implications. See, there's more time ahead of us than that which is behind us. And sometimes we just fail, Lord, honestly, to see it or to remember that eternity is a long time and you've prepared a place for us which is going to last forever. This can put our present sufferings, if we are suffering, in its proper context, even though, Lord, from this pulpit, I would never diminish someone's pain and suffering. But I do pray that your grace and the goodness of our God and the hope of the gospel would spur those on who may be in a season of suffering and may even be asking some tough questions about what you may be doing in their life or somebody close to them. And if that's the case, I pray that they would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that not one thing that they do for you is ever in vain. And if you're here tonight, you've not met Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate Job, the ultimate sufferer, the innocent sufferer who died for us, died for you. Would you open your heart tonight by simply asking Jesus to save you? stay in that attitude of worship and just say, Lord, I want to know you. Thank you for dying on that terrible cross for me, though you were completely innocent. Thank you for suffering for me, paying the penalty for my sin. I believe in your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. I put my faith and trust in you as my Lord, my Savior, my God, and my King. Please save me. If you've been wayward, you've been a wandering sheep, maybe it was pain that pushed you away. God is here. And if you want to just rededicate your life tonight and just say, Lord, I'm tired of running. There's no answers outside of your beautiful face. I'm coming home tonight. I'm tired of running. I want to follow you and use my life for your eternal kingdom. 
Lord, hear the prayer of your people as I know you will. And for those who are feeling like they're at a good place right now, I pray you continue to shower blessings upon them and keep them strong and faithful in you. In Jesus' name we pray and for your glory.